Uh, Matthew chapter 23, we're going to cover 23 to 25 actually today in our King Jesus series. Uh, We've got to land Matthew by the end of May because we're starting a new sermon series in June that we're calling Abe to Dave. We're going to go from Abraham to King David. Uh, and really kind of cover an Old Testament survey journey this summer, which I'm really, really excited about. But we got to land Matthew, which means I'm covering three chapters today uh, in the text. So put your seatbelts on and get ready to dig in. Uh, this is a really important uh, swath of scripture. Uh, I, we're not going to read every verse, uh, but I would encourage you after today to spend some time in these, in these chapters. Context of Matthew 23. Uh, It is Holy Week. It is Tuesday before Good Friday. Uh, Jesus uh, comes into Jerusalem on Sunday, the triumphant, uh, humble entry on Sunday. He spends time in Jerusalem at the temple on Monday. He goes back to Bethany, comes back for the second day in the temple on Tuesday. And that's where we land, Matthew 22 and 23. Um, Jesus is in a battle, really, with his enemies, the Jewish leaders known as the Pharisees. And the last verse of chapter 22 says this. These Pharisees, these opponents of Jesus, those who are rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, it says in verse 46, chapter 22, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Pretty provocative verse. Why is that? What happened that lent itself to the Pharisees dared not ask him any more questions? And the reason for that verse is this last passage, I didn't cover this two weeks ago when we were in chapter 22. So I wanted to set the stage for 23 through 25 with this little paragraph at the very end of chapter 22. Uh, One commentator uh, that I was studying this week in this says that this passage, it's one of the most important statements that Jesus ever made. And if I would ask you this question within the last week or two, or you would ask me this question, hey, what's one of the most important statements that Jesus has ever made? I would say that most of us, none of us would say, oh, what he said in the temple on Tuesday of Holy Week at the end of chapter 22. But this commentator's perspective is that it's one of the most important statements that Jesus ever made. So let's, let's read this together. The end of 22 I'll start in verse 41. Again, Tuesday in the temple. And while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, who do you think, or what do you think about the Christ or the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. And he said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Verse 46, no one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Two questions that Jesus poses in this context. First, Who is the Messiah? Who do you say is the Messiah? And they actually answered the question correctly because they were Jewish and they knew the prophecy and they said correctly that Messiah was a direct descendant from King David. 
Second question, why then does David call his son, his descendant, Lord? Why does David call his descendant Lord? And Jesus quotes Psalm 110. So that, uh, it's verse 44, as a quote, a direct quote from Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is a verse that all Jews accepted a prophecy about Messiah. And so he's using a prophecy in this dialogue with his opponents that all Jews accepted this verse as a direct reference to Messiah. The first Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, the first Lord refers to God the Father. The Lord, the Father says to my Lord, second Lord in that context refers to Jesus, to Messiah, to Christ. And here's the question, this is the mic drop moment of Jesus engaging with the Pharisees that caused them not to ask him any more questions. If Messiah is David's son by descent after the flesh, how then could David call his own son, his own descendant, Lord? And the answer to the question is because Messiah is more than a direct blood descendant from King David. Messiah is deity. He is God. Messiah is David's Lord, divine, far above any earthly idea of kingship, far beyond the reality of King David. And and Jesus' opponents give no answer and they ask him no more questions because they didn't want to speak the obvious answer of Jesus' divinity. And they dared not ask him any more questions. And with that, we get to verse 23, uh, or chapter 23, a final indictment of Israel's religious leaders. Um, Chapter 23 Chapter 24, chapter 25, um, intense, direct, end times prophecy. Uh, Dave Crowder, I think, put out a song in the last year or two called Red, Le- or Red, Red Letters, something like that. What's the name of that song? Is that it, Christian? Red Letters? Is that the name of it? Okay. All of 23, 24, 25, the, all three chapters, Red Letters, all words of Jesus, in this context on this Tuesday, um, addressing his enemies for the last time for their hypocrisy, their corruption, and their rebellion. We'll start, I'll start with reading the first seven verses of Matthew 23. Then Jesus, in, in the temple, on the temple grounds, said to the crowds and to his disciples, and of course the Pharisees were there because he had just been talking to the Pharisees. And so now he's speaking to his disciples and to anyone within an earshot. And he says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must obey them and do everything that they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything that they do is done for men to see. It's just a big show. They make their phylacteries. I'll I'll tell you what that is in a minute if you don't don't know what a phylactery is. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. Uh, They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. 
and they love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them uh, rabbi. So here's a phylactery. So you can see on his arm, the leather on the left arm, and then that little box on his left bicep, right? That's a phylactery. Um, You can see on his forehead, there are little leather boxes that um, even today, I was in Jerusalem in 2019, and we went to uh, the sermon or the, uh, the Temple Mount area, the Wailing Wall, and Orthodox Jews still wear phylacteries. And what they put inside of them, and what Jesus is saying is you make your phylacteries bigger. What they would put inside of them were, uh, were laws that they were to obey. So it's kind of like this, the bigger it was, the more it's like, look at me, look how obedient I am to all that God says and does. And basically in this passage, Jesus just said, you're, you're fake. You, are, you, you act, you're not genuine. You put on a, you put on a show. Um, And you make them bigger so that people think that you are godly um, and that's not who you are. A summary verse of chapter 23 is verse 12 uh, would be one that I would encourage you to underline or circle. Like I think it's the summary verse of the entire passage. Uh, Jesus speaking about um, people who embrace religiosity, but their hearts are far from God. And he says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And then as you read through the chapter, if you, as you read through chapter 23, and I would encourage you to do that, to read through chapter 23, it's kind of famously known, like Matthew 23 is a chapter of the woes, when Jesus goes, woe to you over and over and over and over again. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, his Tone is serious, direct. Six times in the chapter, he calls them hypocrites. He says, woe to you blind guides, three times. Like you're leading people, you're guiding people, but you yourself are blind to the realities of who God is. One time at the end of the chapter, he calls them snakes, a brood of vipers. You're like a family of vipers who just seek to devour people with your fake religion that is far from the heart of God. We, uh, chapter 23, we get these phrases that uh, can be pretty well known if you've been around uh, the Gospels church in your life. You've probably heard of these. This, this is in chapter 23. Jesus is speaking about them directly. He's rebuking them, calling them hypocrites. And he says, you give a tenth, like you give a tenth of your spices, you give a tenth of your, of, of your fruit, like you're, you're, you're practicing the tithe, right? You're doing that. But more important matters of life, like justice and mercy and faithfulness, you are neglecting. Uh, we get this imagery, this, uh, this metaphor of you clean the outside of the cup, but inside is full of greed and self-indulgence, right? Serious tone, direct, um, calling on the carpet um, his opponents. Um, where he calls them snakes and brood of vipers. I'll read this with you, verses 33 and 34. Uh, you snakes. I mean, can you imagine if I was preaching and I just was just like, you snakes. I mean, you'd be like, I thought the hellfire and brimstone preaching was over, you know, like, but I just, like this is red letter and Jesus is speaking to people 
who are putting people under a message of oppression, of religious oppression. And it's not the gospel. It's not why he came. And the heart of it, the heart of it, the true heart of it really is love and compassion to awaken people to the reality that he is Messiah and he's Savior. And they are in full rejection of him. But he calls them snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Like I'm sending you people so that you come awake to the truth and the reality that I am Messiah. And some of them you will kill and crucify and others you will flog in your own synagogues and pursue from town to town. Obviously very direct, very serious. But Jesus is calling Jerusalem to repent and to see the reality of who he is and what he is there to do. His compassion is really clear in 37 and 39. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look at your house. It is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Like he is literally leaving the temple grounds after he makes a statement. And you will not see me again until you will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, a prophecy of his second coming. And they leave Jerusalem. Hypocrites, those who are actors, fake and authentic, must see themselves as they truly are before God or they can never be healed of their blindness and admit their utter dependence on God for salvation. And his words, the words of Jesus, they reflect his love, they reflect his grace. I sent you teachers and prophets. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I've longed to gather you. They reflect his sadness, his grace, his hope. He came for blessing and peace to Jerusalem and she rejected him. And because of their rejection of Messiah, they will face the divine justice of God at the second coming. And he leaves the temple for the last time. With these words, he leaves the temple uh, for the last time. And chapters 24 and 25 is his prophecy concerning the last days or the eschaton, uh, a study of eschatology, right, the study of the last days. And he begins to speak to his disciples about the things that will transpire, uh, prophetic things, so that they would have discernment and know what is transpiring in in the kingdom of God in these days. And uh, here's a map of uh, what's happening. He leaves the temple after 23. They go down the Kidron Valley, up past the Garden of Gethsemane, and up to Bethpage, and you can see the Mount of Olives. It's about a two-mile, it's about a two-mile walk. And they get up on the Mount of Olives, and it's the prophecy concerning the last days. It's a, a, a one-setting discourse of Jesus with his disciples, these two chapters. And we think about uh, large discourses of Jesus teaching um, Matthew 5 to 7, right? Matthew 5 to 7 Bible trivia is what? Sermon on, the, Sermon on the Mount, like five, six, seven, large discourse of Jesus. 
Um, John 13 to 16, one setting, the last court, the last supper discourse, which will happen two days after this. Matthew 24 and 25, famous discourse of Jesus. It's known as the Olivet Discourse. Why? Because he's on the Mount of Olives teaching with his disciples. Um, Most of what we read in chapter 24 and 25 is still still future for us today. Um, And again, it's known as eschatology, the study of the end times. Let me just say this uh, humbly uh, with you. Um, When we we read um, eschatological passages, the book of Revelation, Matthew 24 and 25, um, it's not easy to understand, right? There's a lot of apocalyptic language. There's allegory. They're like, what's literal? What's figurative? Like, it's not easy to understand. A lot of the language that we see in chapters 24 and 25 is very similar to the symbolism that uh, John the Apostle gives us in uh, the book of Revelation. Um, So I just want us to uh, hold this humbly and prayerfully and not dogmatically, okay, uh, as we work through this. Um, the two chapters has a lot of detail about two huge events that Jesus is predicting uh, on the Mount of Olives on Tuesday before the cross with the 12 disciples. And the two things that he's predicting, one is the actual physical destruction of the temple, and we'll read those verses, the first, three, the first three verses of Matthew 24. And then everything else is about his second coming and like the end times and the seasons and the times and the prophecies about what has to transpire before Jesus comes again. Um, the actual physical destruction, by the way, that prophecy has already been fulfilled. AD 70, Titus, the Roman general, comes into Jerusalem. Every stone of the temple was was turned on itself, a full fulfillment of the prophecy. Uh, the second thing that Jesus, the other huge event is the second coming of Christ. The first advent of Christ, what we celebrate at Christmas, the second advent of Christ is in front of us, the second coming of Jesus. Um, uh, stat that you might not know, uh, one out of every 20 verses uh, in the New Testament is about the second coming of Jesus. Well, it's important, and we should engage on it. We should think about these things. There's thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of commentary uh, on the second coming, and you can get really lost in the weeds of it. Uh, and there are a lot of really passionate people out there about their particular interpretation of how these things are going to transpire. Here's what I'm inviting you to consider in this conversation. Um, Let us not be dogmatic about this, uh, but let us read the scriptures and study the scriptures prayerfully and humbly. There's a lot of perspective about these uh, things. So I just want to engage it in in that way. Um, So uh, let's read the first three verses of chapter 24. Again, they're on the Mount of Olives looking back two miles at the temple, Herod's temple. And Jesus leaves the temple, was walking away with his disciples, and, came, and his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Isn't the temple amazing? Jesus, do you see these stones? Do you see these buildings? 
right? And this is what Jesus says in response. Jesus says, do you see all these things? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Now, it's, gonna, it's hard for us as Gentiles in 2022 to feel the impact that had to have been the impact for these 12 disciples who were Jewish, who had such an honor of the temple. The temple, uh, it was, it was, there was so much wonder and security in the temple for the Jewish people. And their, their rabbi it just said, it's, it's all gonna get destroyed. I mean, the angst that they must have felt, the confusion that they must have felt, the questions that they must have felt uh, was probably extraordinary. Um, in the temple mount, when the Herod's temple, um, white stone, white marble stone plated with gold. Um, some of the stones have been found are 20 to 40 feet in length. Uh, and the fact that these stones that weighed over 100 tons, the reality that they were cut, moved, placed is an extraordinary, amazing feat of, of ancient engineering. I mean, remarkable. And then they're on the Mount of Olives. And it's, I mean, it's two miles away, but I'm telling you, it's right there. And they're like, what, what? And they ask Jesus these questions because they're so confused by the statement. And so their questions are these, like, when will this happen? Like, when will every stone be thrown down? And then the next question, is there a sign of the very end of these things? And what we see in Jesus's response is a lot of perspective around wisdom and discernment for them about these realities because so many things were unraveling and so he gives them discernment in these things and, it's, and, and, and we'll see this. He doesn't answer all their questions but he gives them wisdom to be able to stand firm in the midst of all that will be unfolding in the last days. And so let's keep reading. I'll read uh, verses four to 15. After they had asked him, uh, he's sitting on the Mount of Olives, and they went to him privately. Um, verse three, tell us, they said, when will this happen, and what will the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch so that no one deceives you. Watch out. I think that's a summary verse in chapter 24. Pay attention. Watch so that you do not come under deception. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Does this sound relevant or familiar to anyone in 2022? Then he says to the 12, you will be handed over to be persecuted and you will be put to death and you will be hated by all nations because of me. Like he's giving them the truth of the circumstances that they were going to face. And at that time, many, many will turn away from faith 
from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached. Let me pause here. This gospel of the kingdom. So I think sometimes we think about the gospel. But I want to encourage us to think about the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel can be a little bit individual, a lot individual. I'm going to invite Jesus into my heart is the gospel. But the gospel of the kingdom is that we have been invited into Christ and into his kingdom. We have been grafted in. We have been invited to the banquet table. And so I think that's really important that we see this not in an individual way like I invite, which by the way, the sinner's prayer is not in the Bible. Asking Jesus into your heart is not in the Bible. What's in the Bible is that we are in Christ. We believe and receive and we are in Christ. And as Gentiles, hallelujah, we have been grafted into the family of God. And so he's preaching about the gospel of the kingdom, the movement of God's kingdom. He says, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all nations, all, all ethnicities. Then, then the end will come. Verse 15. So when you see standing in the holy place, what's the holy place? So it's Tuesday before Good Friday. For the Jewish people, the holy place is the holy of holies. In the temple on Zion. So he's talking to the Jews. And he said, when you see in the holy place, in the second coming, Jesus is going to come back to the Mount of Olives. And there will be an antichrist setting up in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. And that's what he's talking about here. When you see this, so when you see standing in the holy place, and he quotes, it's a direct pull from Daniel 9, 27. The abomination that causes desolation spoken through the prophet Daniel. Let the reader understand. Let us understand what? The end. The end is coming. So a few things on um, these verses. One, again, verse four, I think, is the main lesson of the chapter. Watch. Pay attention so that you are not deceived. There's going to be many in the last days who are coming to deceive you and to, to move you away from having your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. So pay attention. Be aware. Be aware of deception to lead you astray. Uh, watch out. Um, here's a discernment. Like God's purposes always prevail. And so you can stand firm even in the midst of persecution. Even, even at the fulfillment of the abomination that causes desolation. Uh, we did a Daniel series um, two years ago. It was uh, 2020, 2021. Uh, we spent a lot of time unpacking this. And so uh, I'm not going to unpack it right now, but I would encourage you, if you've never you know, read or, or, or gotten teaching on that phrase, the abomination that causes desolation, uh, there's plenty of uh, places for you to go grab that on our website and go listen to those messages. I would encourage you to do that if you would like to. 
Um, But Jesus picks it up directly uh, from Daniel, direct reference. Um, Most biblical scholars believe, and I I would agree, uh, that this phrase that Jesus is speaking about here is a reference to the Antichrist, okay? Uh, A world dictator who is setting up the entire world under his deception on Zion in Jerusalem in the end times. That's what he's speaking about. Um, and here's, here's where I just want to like press, like just press the time out a second and just like, okay. Um, some teachers get pretty dogmatic about all the timing of this. And I'm not one of those teachers. Um, I want to caution us against being so dogmatic about the timing of how all this is going to occur. Um, We shouldn't get caught up in predicting when the second coming will occur. Um, Some people, a lot of people perhaps, can really check out like, oh, I didn't know we're going to be doing Matthew 24 and 25. He said eschatology. I'm checked out from the moment. Why? Why is that? Because uh, some teachers have, and I'm going to say it this way, have foolishly set dates for Christ's return when he specifically says that it can't be done. Oh, well, we did, we looked at the prophecies and we, you know, saw this and we grabbed this and Jesus is coming back in 1965. Oh, wait, we meant 1977. Oh, wait, we meant 1987. Oh, wait, Y2K. Anybody Y2K out there? Anybody remember that? Look at what Jesus says. It's, it's pretty clear. It's pretty clear. Red letter. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, with that said, Certainly in this passage, Jesus would not be leading us to stick our heads in the sand either, right? So he says this, our summary verse of chapter 24, watch out so that no one deceives you. Matthew 24, 42, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. So it's holding this. We're not to try to predict the day or the hour. Jesus doesn't even know when that's coming. But we are, as God's people, to stay awake, to watch and anticipate the return of Christ. Amen? And he goes on in chapter 5, and he gives us two parables. We're not going to read these parables. uh, But both parables, the context of both is end times prophecy, to stay awake and be ready for his certain return. Uh, Parable of the ten virgins, uh, first 13 verses of chapter 25 Keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Parable of the talents, Matthew 25, 14 to 28. Uh, This call of God on disciples to um, use the time and the talents and the treasures that God has given us to steward well in the advancement of God's kingdom, right? And so we read that that, parable. Parable, and we hear this famous phrase, you have been faithful with a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. And so discernment, 
Don't predict, don't get caught up in the prediction, but watch and stay awake because the end is coming and Jesus is returning. And here's the discernment uh, that I see that Jesus is offering to us. And it's just simply, simply this, like you must be ready. Don't be deceived, but you must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So I think a big question in this conversation is simply this, what do you think it means to be ready? Like what, do you, what do you, like, what do you think? Like, what do you think about Jesus's words? Like, for your life, for my life, for our life together in community, um, in 2022, in Fort Collins, in this, like, how, what do we do with this exhortation to be ready? And I just, I want to humbly uh, invite you to consider some of my thoughts on what, um, it means to be ready. I don't think that these three things are exhaustive, but this is my encouragement to us today to consider these things. Uh, first is this, and we've talked about this already. Don't predict the day, but be expectant. I would invite us to avoid living in the extremes of the eschatology conversation. Um, the eschatological enthusiasts, they get distracted with predictions about all these things and they lose the mission, the simplicity of the mission to preach the gospel and to love our neighbors well. The eschatological nonchalant on the other side of the extreme become, can become inattentive and even skeptical of what Jesus says will certainly happen. So I would say, um, don't listen to people that like to calculate and predict the second coming of Jesus. Don't predict the day, but watch the times. Pay attention to the times, right? We're not gonna get caught up in the hysteria of predicting this year or this date or whatever, but we are going to be faithful to what Jesus says in these verses, to stay awake, to watch, and to be ready, for his return. And honestly, like we live in days when prophecies are being fulfilled. Certainly a lot of the things that we read in these chapters are still future, but there, there, there are things that are happening. I mean, we read these verses and I pause and be like, does this sound familiar to anyone? We're like, whoa, this sounds like now. So let's not stick our head in the sand. Let's pay attention. Um, the parable of the 10 virgins has a pretty key element. Um, there's no advance warning to the bridegroom's return. Uh, no one knows when this time will come, not even Jesus, the Father only knows. But we know that he's coming because he said he is coming and we can be expectant and hopeful of that um, to stay ready. So that's my first encouragement, to be expectant of what he has said will occur. Uh, secondly, disciples are empowered to endure hardship. Disciples are those who believe in Jesus, who have received the person of Jesus, his work on the cross, his resurrection, and have heeded the call to follow him, to follow him in his life as Lord. And we have a lot of comfort and expectation and peace about these conversations because the assurance of Jesus coming again, the assurance that Jesus rose from the dead enables disciples to endure anything that may come our way, amen? Doesn't mean it's easy. Doesn't mean it's gonna be easy. Jesus told the disciples, 
Last Supper discourse, John 16, in this world you will have trouble. Take heart, take heart, I have overcome the world. That's where we take heart. So let us not, like, we're watching the seasons, we're watching the times, like, persecution is increasing, whatever it may be, like, we don't have to, like, God's purposes will prevail. Uh, Jesus rose, he's coming again, we can endure. Um, Here's a powerful promise to grab onto in this conversation, Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. This whole conversation is about standing firm in a fallen world until the second advent of Jesus. And so the people of God, those who belong to Christ, we rest truly, like truly rest, have peace that passes understanding, right? Philippians 4, like we have the peace of God that passes understanding and we have the God of peace with us. No matter what may come our way, because we know and believe that his purposes will prevail. And if you belong to Christ, you need not fear. You need not fear, but look for his return eagerly. In trying times, our hope and security is not in the world. It's not in the world. In trying times, your hope and security is not in your bank account. It's not in your health. It's not in your safety, even. Our hope and security is in Jesus Christ, our cornerstone. His words, his promises. My hope is built on nothing less. We chose that song on purpose today. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is... And so we stand on Jesus, whatever may come our way. Thirdly, lastly, for your consideration this morning in this conversation, we have a ministry call in our lives while we watch and while we stay awake. I wanna get us centered in two things, two two things. The second coming of the Lord is certain because he promised it. And when he comes at the end of time, There will be a separation of people that know him, that are in Christ, and those who are not in Christ. And our call as disciples is to proclaim the gospel in our words and in our deeds while we watch and while we wait and prepare for his coming. Um, Watching, I want you to connect watching and being ready with practical, humble servanthood. That's what we do. Jesus had been engaging with the disciples a few times in the Gospel of Matthew already about what it means to be the greatest. And what he said it means is humble servants. Greatness is humble servants. And so while we watch and while we wait, let us be humble servants of the Lord, humble servants of one another, humble servants of our neighbors, humble servants of our city to proclaim in word and deed the coming of the Lord. I wanna read Um, the end of chapter 25. Uh, And again, um, it's it's a serious tone out of the compassion of God for people to come awake. This red letter, this is Jesus at the end of the Olivet Discourse. Um, Here's what he says at the end of this context with his disciples. 
When the Son of Man comes in his glory, if you want to write down Revelation 19, you can like get some more context of what that's going to look like and be like. All the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. Bless you both. That was in unison. All the nations will be gathered before him. And he, the Son of Man, Prophetic fulfillment of Daniel, son of man, that title. Like, by the way, Jesus called himself the son of man more than any other messianic title. Where am I? All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you, the gospel of the kingdom. There it is again. Since the creation of the world, for I was hungry. Here's the practical things. Here's the, we proclaim in word and deed while we watch and wait. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply this famous phrase, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not even look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or needing clothes or sick in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. In verse, verse 46, in grace and in truth, with, with compassion and mercy and love, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. These are serious things, would you agree, for us to consider from Jesus on the Mount of Olives on Tuesday before he would go to the cross. In chapter 23, um, commentators take a Greek word. Um, the Greek word is Gehenna. And the, the English word in our text is hell. But the Greek word is Gehenna. So when Jesus is teaching on Gehenna, the people in Jerusalem would have immediately known what Gehenna was because it was an actual physical place in a valley outside of Jerusalem where there was this constant burning of trash and pagans, child sacrifice. It was just, it was this, it's this visual, it's this imagery, right, that Jesus is giving them. And he uses that place, Gehenna, uh, to um, speak of uh, eternal fire and eternal 
punishment. Uh, these are um, discomforting things to think about. Um, but I, I want to encourage us, and, and, and I hope that we can, like, like, hear the teaching of these serious things through the lens of the compassion and the love and the mercy of Jesus who came to the world to save the world with this message. Um, did you know that Jesus speaks of Gehenna more than any other biblical writer? Did you know that Jesus speaks on Gehenna more than he does on heaven? Why? Because he is full of grace and truth for people to come awake to who he is as Messiah and Savior. Let's read this verse one more time. Um, Andrew and Jordan, you guys can come back up and we'll close here. Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Let's, let's bring our minds back to those 12 disciples on the Mount of Olives on that Tuesday to wrap up. The parallel passage of Matthew 24 and 25 is Mark 13. So later, if you want to like read 24 and 25 and then read Mark 13, and when we take those three chapters together, uh, we pull some things together of encouragement for us around this conversation. One, there will be deceivers seeking to lead you astray. Watch out and stand firm in the gospel of Jesus the Christ. Two, there will be persecution and wars and struggle. Endure, endure. Three, you will be hated, arrested, flogged because of me. Preach the gospel in your persecution. And lastly, he told the disciples in Mark 13, you will be brought to trial, but don't worry about what you will say. My spirit will be with you. And Jesus says this, do not worry. Don't worry. My spirit is with you. Notice in 24 and 25, Mark 13, Jesus doesn't promise them deliverance from the hard circumstances that are coming their way, but he offers them divine help in the midst of the circumstances, which is our empowerment, which is how we endure, which is how we stand firm. And I think about these 12 disciples, it's Tuesday. Think about with me for a moment what they would experience five days later on Sunday. Can, can you imagine the angst that they were feeling, the woes, the temples coming down? Like, can you just, and to go five days later, and what did they experience? They experienced the risen Christ in their midst. And what happened after that? Go read the book of Acts. And here's what you'll find. The disciples stood firm and they endured and they preached the gospel in the face of bitter opposition. And here's the sovereignty of God. Persecution, persecution always leads to more proclamation. So let us not run away from endurance and standing firm and preaching the gospel even in hard circumstances, but let us lean in. It is an opportunity for us to be a witness, church, to the goodness of God and the truth that we have that he is alive and that he is with us and that he has called us while we wait to proclaim the gospel in word and deed. So let us be about the business of the advancement of the kingdom of God and let us encourage each other with these things, amen?
more and more and more as we see the day approaching. Um, we're going to worship. I'm going to pray, uh, and then we're going to worship. Um, if you uh, feel stirred in some uh, way around this particular message, or there's just something going on in your life, and while we're singing, you just want someone to pray with you. We're going to have some prayer ministry team members back in this corner. Uh, you're welcome to go engage with them. They would be so uh, privileged and blessed to pray with you while we sing these last two songs of our morning. Um, let us stand together and worship the living God.